Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Morning, everybody. Now, there are a lot of hard questions that confront us in life, right? There's lots of hard things to work through. For example, how is this word possibly pronounced, Colonel? How is that possible? If you punch yourself and it hurts, are you really strong or are you just really weak? Let you think about that one for a while. Why is the word gullible not in the dictionary? Some of you have to think about that one for a while too. And if peanut oil comes from peanuts and coconut oil comes from coconuts, where does baby oil come from? (laughs) Some hard questions actually arise from the Bible. Where did Cain get his wife? What age will we be in eternity? Who are the proper recipients for baptism? Professing believers only or the children of believers as well? That's been a hard question that's been debated throughout the centuries in the church. But that question about baptism has actually obscured another hard question about baptism. And that question is this. Why did Jesus get baptized? Was he repenting? And if so, of what? And what are the implications of that for us? And if he wasn't repenting, what exactly was he doing there? Getting baptized. That's a hard question. But it's not just a question that should pique our curiosity. It actually has important implications for our understanding of the gospel. There is good news in Jesus' baptism. There's good news in Jesus' baptism. So let's consider this morning the glory of of Jesus' baptism by looking at the account we find of that in Matthew's gospel. The baptism itself occurs in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, but we're going to begin our reading in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one in one of the seats in front of you, underneath one of the seats, and that text can be found, I believe, on page 472. So let's stand now, if you're able, for the reading of God's word, beginning in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let those who have ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
let's consider three things about the glory of Jesus' baptism this morning. First, see a messianic request in verses 13 to 14. And then we read a redemptive reason in verse 15. And finally, we see a heavenly response in verses 16 and 17. So let's begin this morning with the messianic request of Jesus' baptism in verses 13 and 14. We are told, if you look with me again in verse 13, that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, implying a request that Jesus makes to John to be baptized. Now, we're told at the start of this chapter, Matthew chapter 3, that John's presence and activity at the Jordan baptizing is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you look back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 3, the beginning of that chapter, this is what we see. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in ancient times, before a king would enter into a city, a forerunner would often be sent ahead to announce the king's imminent arrival, often blowing a horn to signal the people to get ready. Clear the streets, prepare the way, make a path straight, for the king is coming. And that's John's ministry, to prepare the way for the coming king, to prepare the way for Jesus and to announce that his kingdom is at hand. And the way that John prepares the way, according to verse 11, is with water for a baptism of repentance. That's how he's preparing the way. And we should be very clear here not to confuse John's baptism with Christian baptism. There are some similarities They both use water to symbolize cleansing. But John's baptism is not distinctively Christian baptism that we read about at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples and tells them to baptize. He tells them there to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John never baptized anybody in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because his baptism was not distinctively Trinitarian or Christian baptism. It's different. John's baptism likely has its roots in Old Testament cleansing rituals and also is probably closely associated with conversion ceremonies at Jesus' time when Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism. Around the time of Jesus, if a Gentile wanted to convert to become a Jew, a male would have to become circumcised in accordance with the law and either male or female would have to be washed in baptism because Gentiles were regarded as unclean. So they had to undergo this baptism. But notice what's significant here in John's baptism is he's not calling Gentiles to repent and be baptized. He's calling the people of Israel to be baptized because John is leveling the playing field. Everybody's unclean and needs to be cleansed. But how exactly does this baptism prepare the way for Israel's coming king? How is that a preparation Jesus. Well, think about it maybe like this. If you want to get ready for the king, and if you want to be a part of his kingdom, the first step you have to take is acknowledging that you're not fit the way that you are to be received by the king, to enter into the kingdom. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinful person, that you're an unclean person in need of cleansing. That's how it prepares the way for this coming king who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And by the way, that's as true today as it was in John's time. But you have to acknowledge your sinfulness. Listen, you're not going to understand what Christianity is about. You're not going to sense your need for coming to Jesus as a savior unless you understand the depths of the sinfulness that's in your heart. I mean, think about it. Jesus came as a savior to save us from sin. If you don't have a sense of your sinfulness, you're not going to have a sense of your need for Jesus to save you. C.S. Lewis understood this very well when he wrote, a sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. And by the way, John the Baptist does too. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. We have to have a sense of our sinfulness if we're to flee to Jesus as a savior and as a king who saves us from sin. So that's a question to ask yourself this morning. Have you humbled yourself and acknowledged that you're a sinful person in need of a savior? That's the first step that we have to take. But of course, thinking about John's ministry in this way, calling people to acknowledge their sinfulness only intensifies this question we have. Why did Jesus get baptized? Why this messianic request? Well, if it helps, note that John is confused by it too. That John would have prevented him in his response according to verse 14. If you look there with me again, when Jesus comes to him for baptism, he says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It doesn't make any sense to John. It's like Nathan Bergman asking me to teach him to play the drums. It's like Brian Carter, who's really good at billiards, coming up to me and asking if I would teach him how to play a safety shot in billiards. It's like Connie Connor, I don't see her here this morning, coming and asking me to teach her to make a carrot cake. (laughs) I need you to teach me these things, and you're coming to me to teach you? That's John's reaction. I need to be baptized by you, not just with water, but I need to be baptized by you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and are you coming to me but in Jesus reply to John we see a second thing and that's a redemptive reason for Jesus's baptism in verse 15 the redemptive reason Jesus answers John's objections if you look in verse 15 with this let it be so now let it be so now we could literally translate that just let it go John Now notice that Jesus doesn't offer any correction to his logic. He doesn't point out any faults in the way John is thinking about the situation. He doesn't do that at all. It's almost as if he says, look, John, I understand that what I'm asking you doesn't make sense to you right now. But just let it go. Let it be so now. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's right for you to baptize me, John. And it's right for me to get baptized by you but how why if John's baptism is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus doesn't need to repent and Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven of any sins because he's sinless why is he standing in the Jordan River asking John to baptize him well there's a redemptive reason for it 
We can say this first. Jesus takes his place among those who are being baptized by John in order to identify with sinners. He's already taken one step to identify with sinners. He's taken on human flesh. In the incarnation, he identifies with sinners. And now at his baptism, he's identifying with sinners because in his messianic work of redemption, it is necessary for him to identify with the sinners that he aims to save. Many of you know who Corey Tenboom is. Her family sought to protect Jews who were threatened to be seized by Nazis in the Netherlands during the occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. And Corey Tenboom recalls that when the Jews were forced to wear a Star of David to easily identify themselves as Jews before the occupying Nazis, that her, that her father, Caspar Tenboom, willingly and voluntarily also wore a Star of David in order to identify with the people that he was attempting to save. Voluntarily did that, even if it would lead to punishment, persecution, and suffering to so identify with them. And of course it did. He was imprisoned by the Nazis and nine days later died at the age of 84, imprisoned by the Nazis. And here in a similar way, Jesus willingly, voluntarily identifies with sinners, even if it will lead to his punishment and suffering, which indeed it will, because there's additional steps in this identification. He becomes incarnate. He identifies with sinners at baptism, and he will eventually identify with sinners at the cross. In fact, we can press this identification even further and say that what Jesus is doing, the redemptive reason, is to be numbered with the transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors at his baptism. This is actually language that we get from Isaiah chapter 53, that great prophetic chapter that paints this portrait of the suffering servant who suffers on behalf of sinful people, who carries our burdens and our griefs, whose iniquity are placed upon him. And it says in verse 12 that he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus had to be numbered with the transgressors so that he could die for those transgressions, so that he could redeem them, so that he could redeem us. But the redemptive reason in Jesus' words here in submitting to John's baptism is in verse 15, and it's to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus says. It's right for you to baptize me, John, for the fulfillment of all righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, it, it, it means at least this, that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He did that. And our hearts should rejoice and sing that he did that. But he didn't just die for our sins. He also lived for our righteousness. In his life, Jesus fulfilled every requirement of the law on behalf of his people. Every single thought, every single word, every single act that is commanded, including, by the way, the act of repentance, which is what's required of sinners. Jesus fulfilled and perfectly performed on behalf of his people. Every affection of devotion and love that's owed to the Father was fulfilled and perfectly performed by Jesus on behalf of his people. Here's what that means for you. Listen. If you've acknowledged your sinfulness and you're looking to Jesus as your Savior, then what that means is you do not stand before your Father simply with the stains of your sin removed from you 
And you don't stand before your judge simply with your long list of criminal offenses dropped. That's true, but it's more than that. You stand before your father not just with the stains of your sin removed. You stand before your father dressed in royal robes of righteousness. And it's not just that your criminal record has been dropped before your judge. You actually have medals of honor draped on your neck before your judge. All because Jesus identified with you. Because Jesus took your place. Because Jesus succeeded He fulfilled all righteousness where Adam failed, where Israel failed, and every place where you fail and I fail. He fulfilled all righteousness so that in him we might be counted perfectly righteous before our God. And so when you are plagued with this nagging sense of not being good enough, not being a good enough person, not being a good enough Christian, because your faith wavers at times, because you keep struggling with the same old sins that pop up in your life, even though you've repented of those sins, when your time in the word feels dry, because your prayer life is weak, because your love for God and others feels so cold sometimes, because your growth in righteousness seems so meager and difficult to detect, at those times remember that Jesus has been good enough for you and you are counted righteous by faith in the one who fulfilled all righteousness. That's what he's doing. Standing in the Jordan River, asking John to baptize him. He's repenting in your place, not for his sins, but in your place. So thankfully, John consents and baptizes Jesus. And when he baptizes Jesus, we see third thing, a heavenly response to Jesus' baptism in verses 16 and 17. Look with me there in those verses. Matthew tells us that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now let me briefly mention here that some will argue from this text that Jesus was immersed by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And therefore, immersion is the required mode of baptism for Christians. I mean, after all, it says it right here. He went up from the water. True, but there's another way to understand what's being said there. It may simply be that Jesus descended into the water from the riverbank and after the baptism ascended back up the riverbank out of the water. And that's a fair reading. In fact, this is clearly what we should understand in a different occasion in Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, when Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And there it tells us that they both came up out of the water. So the right way to understand that is probably that they went down into the water from the riverbank and back up, unless we are to suppose that Philip immersed himself at the same time he was immersing the Ethiopian eunuch. It's probably not the right way to read that. Now, was Jesus immersed by John the Baptist? Maybe. It's possible that he was. It's also possible that he wasn't. This text actually doesn't give us any warrant to conclude definitively one way or the other about the mode of baptism. And so we shouldn't be distracted by that here. Instead, we should notice this about the glory of Jesus' baptism. All three members of the Trinity are present. The Son is baptized. 
the Holy Spirit descends, and the Father speaks from heaven. All three members of the Trinity. In fact, the descent of the Spirit coming to rest upon Jesus is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. It's a messianic prophecy. And we read there in Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. It's a prophecy of Jesus and it's fulfilled here at the baptism because Jesus is anointed and equipped for his messianic work by the Holy Spirit. Anointed and equipped. In fact, the Hebrew term Messiah and the Greek term Christ or Christos literally mean, both of them, anointed one. It means the anointed one, and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit here at his baptism to conduct his work of redemption on behalf of his people. But in addition to the Spirit descending, there's another sign here that accompanies the baptism, and that's a voice from heaven. Have you ever heard God's voice speaking from heaven? Have you ever heard that? There was once an ice fisherman who thought he heard God's voice speaking from heaven. He set up all his equipment and he began to cut into the ice and he heard a voice from above say, there are no fish there. And so believing he was the recipient of divine guidance as to where the fish were, he picked up his equipment, moved elsewhere and began cutting in the ice again. And he heard the voice a second time. There are no fish there. And so for a third time, he picks up his equipment, moves further, begins cutting into the ice and the voice says, This is the ice rink manager. There are no fish there. Not the voice of God. How would you know if the voice of God was speaking from heaven? How would you know that? Well, according to Matthew's gospel, you would know if it exalts Jesus as the Son. Because there's only two occasions in Matthew's gospel where the Father speaks from heaven. The baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration. On both occasions, the Father places his seal of approval upon Jesus by declaring him to be his beloved son with whom he is well pleased on both of those occasions. In fact, Matthew tells us that the heavens were open to him. So pleasing is Jesus to the Father that the heavens are opened indicating access to the Father's glorious presence for the Son. Mark actually uses the word torn The heavens were torn open. And Jesus would delight in the presence of his Father throughout his life and throughout his ministry until the next time Mark uses that same word for torn. And it's in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. And it's when the curtain of the temple is torn. And so at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn, indicating access that the Son has to the Father. But when the curtain of the temple is torn, Jesus is dying. He's on a cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That presence and approval is revoked and removed now on the cross. Why? Because remember, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors at his baptism. And now on the cross, he is numbered and counted as the transgressor. The one who knew no sin is made to be sin, and he bears the sins of the people. Yes, Jesus identifies with sinners at his baptism, but he knows he has to identify with sinners all the way to the cross. 
even bearing the penalty that they deserve for their sins, which is exile from the presence of God and death. That's how far he has to identify with sinners. And Jesus knew this at his baptism. It's no accident that on more than one occasion, Jesus refers to his death as his baptism. This is his baptism. It's identification with sinners even to the point of dying as the sinner bearing the iniquities of his people. So he's hanging on the cross for the very same reason that he's standing in the waters of the Jordan River asking John to baptize him. He's there in our place. He's on the cross in our place. He's standing in the waters of the Jordan in our place. John Stott helpfully and insightfully says this, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves in God's place, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself in our place. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. And that's true at Jesus' baptism. That's true at Jesus' death. In fact, that's true through the entire work of Jesus' redemption. Listen, Jesus lives, he dies, he's raised, and he ascends. Pro nobis. It's a Latin phrase, and it's worth thinking about. It's worth remembering. Pro nobis. For us. On our behalf. In our place. Jesus lives for us. Jesus dies for us. Jesus is raised for us. Jesus ascends for us in our place, in our behalf. And because he does that, we are the recipients of what rightfully belong to him. We think about it. Because Jesus dies in our place, the curtain of the temple is torn, giving us access by faith in him to the presence of the Father. And if that's true, if that privilege and benefit is given to us, then let's go and seek his presence in the word, and in prayer. Let's pursue the presence of the Lord. And because Jesus was in our place, the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon him and anointed him is now poured out upon us to give us new life. And that spirit now equips us to live lives of increasing love, devotion, and obedience to him. So go. Go and live in the power of the spirit and pursue holiness moment by moment being equipped by the spirit. Because Jesus was in our place, the words of the Father that were pronounced upon the Son are now pronounced upon you, Christian. The Lord delights in you. He says of you, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Do you believe that? that that's the Father's pronouncement upon you if you're in Christ, but only if you're in Christ. The Father is only pleased as you are in Christ because only in Christ do you have a perfect righteousness that's been credited to you because he fulfilled all righteousness. Only in Christ do you have a Savior who has died an atoning death for your sins. It's only in Christ. The one baptized in the Jordan River that same Jordan River that Joshua and the Israelites crossed over to enter into the promised land in the Old Testament, this Jesus standing there now before John 
is the greater Joshua. Same name in Hebrew, by the way, Yeshua. It's the greater Joshua. He's the only entry point into the new and greater promised land of eternal life and glory. And listen, John the Baptist says in verse 12, the winnowing fork is in his hand. Judgment's coming. When Jesus came the first time, he came to work redemption. He's coming again and he's bringing final judgment. Listen, there is a Messiah who can rescue us from our sins. There is a Messiah who can take our place because he fulfilled all righteousness and he died an atoning death in the place of sinners. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah and he alone is the Messiah. But you can acknowledge your sinfulness. You can trust in him as your savior. You can give your heart and your life to him and be saved. That's the glory of Jesus' baptism. It's the glory of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such a savior as Jesus to identify with us not in our best moments, not in the good parts, but in the worst moments, in the worst parts, to identify with us in our sins and to die an atoning death in our place for those sins and to come and to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. And so, Father, we would pray that you would conform us to him who loved us and gave himself for us, that we would love sacrificially as he has loved us and that we would live lives of righteousness even as he has fulfilled all righteousness for us. We rejoice in the good news of the gospel. We thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, our Messiah. Amen.